Hello everyone and welcome to today's safety and health webcast, Fall Protection, Stop Falling Down on the Job, sponsored by KPA. My name is Barry Botino and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. From our team here at the National Safety Council. Hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Fall Protection, Stop Falling Down on the Job, sponsored by KPA. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. From our team here at the National Safety Council, which is currently working remotely, we hope that you are all safe and healthy amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I'd like to go over some housekeeping items. The views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council, or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, there will be a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click on the button for Submit Question. We'll try to get to as many questions as possible today, but we might not get to every question. Any questions that we don't get to, however, will be forwarded along to our speaker. If you have any technical issues during this webcast, please refer to our list of helpful tips located on the right-hand portion of your screen. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located at the bottom of your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you about that a little later. The webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. When to view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, visit our website at safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's introduce our presenter. Our speaker today is Dita Amte, who serves as a risk management consultant with KPA. And Dita previously worked for more than five years as an environmental scientist for the state of California before joining KPA two years ago. She has a bachelor's degree in environmental science policy management and a master's degree in organization management and development. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation today. Thank you everybody for joining us today. Our agenda will look something like this. We'll start with some fall protection statistics, move on to the most common types of fall related accidents and how to prevent them. Some basic differences between the construction standard and general industry standard under OSHA and a hierarchy of controls. So a quick reminder, OSHA injury reporting, certain types of injuries do need to be reported to OSHA within a certain time frame. So you should have your OSHA area office contact information readily available. You can find that through a Google search. Within eight hours, you must notify OSHA if you have experienced a work-related fatality. And within 24 hours, you must report any inpatient hospitalization, any employee amputation as a result of work-related incident, or any employee loss of an eye as a result of a work-related incident. And also, it is OSHA summary log posting season from February through April 30th you should have your OSHA 300 logs posted in break rooms around your facility. All right, so getting right into fall protection statistics, 
all the slides you're going to see are taken from the Bureau of Labor Statistics website or the National Safety Council website. So fatal occupational injuries by major event, falls, slips, and trips are only behind transportation incidences. So in 2016, there were 849 fatal occupational injuries. In 2017, 887. And then in 2018, 791. So falls are among the most common causes of serious work-related injuries and deaths at the workplace. Occupational injuries involving days away from work. This also correlates with the previous slide. Slip trips and fall injuries are the second most frequent type of injury resulting from days away from work. And this infographic provides a summary of the eight leading non-fatal work-related injuries involving days away from work summarizing eight leading non-fatal related injuries. So falls are generally grouped into two categories, falls on a lower level and then falls on the same level. So following highway crashes and intentional injuries by persons, falls to a lower level is the third leading fatal workplace event and the fourth leading event resulting in cases with days away from work. So in 2018, 615 workers died and 52,510 were injured. The average or median, I'm sorry, days away from work for this type of fall is at 18 days. And a fall to a lower level is defined as the point of contact with the source of the injury was lower than the surface supporting the person at the inception of the fall. When it comes to falls on the same level, in 2018, 154 workers died and 147,390 were injured. So this category applies when the point of contact with the source of the injury was at the same level or above the surface supporting the person at the inception of the fall. Falls on the same level have a median day, days away from work at 10 days. And workers' compensation costs by cause from 2016 to 2017. According to NCCI data, the most costly lost time workers' compensation claims by cause of injury result from first motor vehicle crashes, then burns, and then falls or slips with the average cost at $46,592 per claim. So based on the handful of slides we just looked at, it's pretty clear that slip trips and falls are not only a risk around general industry environments and construction environments to the employee and pose real safety and health risks, they're also very expensive to the employer. A couple of case studies that relate to fall protection, this story here was taken from the EHS Today website. Mr. Stalin Rene Barahona was sentenced to five years in prison for a death that occurred in 2015. One of his workers, Mr. Velasquez Nunez, was completing a residential roofing project in Florida. He fell to almost 20 feet to the ground and died in the hospital. And Along with the five-year prison times uh, for Mr. Barahona, the proposed penalty was $53,900.
one of the reasons he was given prison time was he was made aware of the fall hazards on his workplace well before the OSHA inspection and failed to do anything about it. Another story is from August 20th, 2019. OSHA cited five-star roofing systems based in Indiana for exposing employees to fall hazards while performing roofing work. The company faced $220,000 in penalties for repeated fall protection violations. Some of the things they were cited for were the willful, repeated, and serious safety violations for failing to provide head, eye, and face fall protection, improper use of warning lines during low-sloped roof construction. We'll talk about that briefly. Lack of guards on belts and pulleys, unsafe use of ladders, and failing to designate a safety monitor. So in 2019, the fall protection general requirement standard was the most frequently cited by OSHA. And the eighth most frequently cited was fall protection training requirements. Fall hazards are something that I'm always looking at when I'm conducting an inspection and you can always uh, guarantee an inspector will be keeping their eyes open when they're on site at your facility. All right, so briefly talking about some regulations. Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970 was created during the Nixon administration. The General Duty Clause, Section 5A1, states that each employer is responsible for creating a place of employment that is free from recognized hazards that are likely to cause death or serious physical harm. And depending on which state you're in, you might have a state plan. Even if you're in a state with a state plan, it's always important and a good idea to also pay attention to any changes that take place uh, with the federal OSHA plan as it may impact your state plan. It is also important to keep this in mind because OSHA can repeal state-specific regulations if they believe they are not up to standard. So in 2015, this happened in Arizona. OSHA repealed the Arizona state-specific residential fall protection regulation because fall protection was not required until 15 feet or more. So the construction standard for the federal OSHA plan states that fall protection is required above six feet. The Arizona plan didn't require it until 15 feet. And one of the ways OSHA proved this was that between 2003 and 2014, 11, 11 Arizona workers died in falls between six and 15 feet. And so using this information, OSHA allowed Arizona to keep its state plan status, but did require them to change their fall protection standard to meet the federal standard. So if you are in any of these states with a light blue color, you follow the federal plan. If you're in a state with the medium blue color, your state has an OSHA approved state plan that covers private, state, and local government workplaces. If you're in a state that's colored dark blue, your state has an OSHA-approved state plan that covers state and local government workplaces only. Private workplaces are still subject to the federal standard. 
Okay, so when discussing construction versus general industry, there is one key factor to keep in mind. Fall protection in the general industry is required when unprotected sides or edges are presenting fall hazards at four feet or higher. And in the construction industry, as I just mentioned with the Arizona example, fall protection is required at six feet or higher. And this includes hoist areas, runways, areas above dangerous equipment, wall openings, repair pits, stairways, scaffolds, and slaughtering platforms. OSHA updated its general industry fall protection standard to be more like the construction standard. And there are a few updates that relate to ladders. As you can see there, portable ladders need to be inspected prior to use. And for all of your fixed ladders, even if they're roof access ladders, any sort of fixed ladder in your facility that is over 24 feet currently needs to be equipped with a cage, well, personal fall arrest system, or ladder safety system. And by November 18, 2036, which is a long time from now, you will need to replace your cages and wells with ladder safety or personal fall arrest systems. So you got some time, but it will eventually need to be done. And ladder safety systems are defined as a system of lanyards, connectors, carriers, safety sleeves, and body harnesses designed to prevent falls from fixed ladders. And we'll go into some of these components later. That picture there on the left-hand side of your screen is a good example of what a ladder safety system looks like. And as is the case with any new equipment, anybody using the ladder and the ladder safety system will need to be trained on its proper use. All right, so general industry. Some locations where you might need to incorporate protective measures include any of these areas listed in the bullet points. Skylights are a pretty commonly cited location that lack fall protection, depending on how old your building is. KPA did recently see a accident with a contractor at a business that involved the contractor falling through the skylight. Um, he is now in a coma. So these accidents do happen. Um, they're very serious when they do happen. And regular inspection of your facility to identify areas where fall protection is necessary is and should be a common practice at your facility. So earlier, earlier we talked about warning line systems in that example of the five-star roofing system citation from OSHA. So roof work can be conducted without the use of a fall arrest or fall restraint system if it's meeting certain requirements, in which case warning line systems can be used. So warning line system marks off the area where workers can do roofing work and in order to use a warning line system uh, the warning lines themselves need to be no less than five feet from the edge of the roof they need to be erected around all sides of the roof work area they need to be flagged and highly visible marked every six feet and between 34 and 39 inches in height 
and used only on low slope roofs. In the general industry, they must have a minimum breaking strength of 200 pounds. In the construction industry, it's re recommended that a minimum breaking strength of 200 pounds is there. No employee shall be allowed in the area between the warning line and the roof's edge unless the employee is performing roofing work in that area. And in that case, that employee that's stepping outside of the warning line will be subject to using a fall arrest system or more protection. All right, so looking at some more unsafe elevated work surfaces in a general industry environment, we have some storage tanks, some stor stationary storage tanks there in the first picture. These tanks often have to be inspected by employees, which require them to be scaled. Sometimes there's gauges at the top of these tanks that need to be read. The second picture, is a picture of a man climbing onto or off of a tanker ladder and walking on top of the tanker. Typically a horizontal lifeline, body harness and connector would be an appropriate form of fall protection for this type of work. Certain types of scaffolding that fit around the tanker and eliminate the open edge can also be considered as a fall protection system. And in the third picture, we have somebody standing on top of a piece of equipment, and that top of the equipment is four feet off the ground. Fall arrest or fall restraint system, something like a horizontal lifeline, would also be appropriate in this situation to eliminate the fall hazard. In our next slide, we have floor openings or pits, wall openings, and shelving units as other potentially unsafe elevated work surfaces. So in our next slide, we'll we'll discuss repair pits a little bit and what type of markings are required to keep that pit in compliance. The second picture is showing you a piece of sheet metal that is not attached to the vertical steel beams. So if someone were to fall into that sheet metal in that warehouse, it would push away from the floor and allow the employee to fall. This is also something we'll see in warehouses or in mezzanine areas where double doors open out onto an open ledge. Uh, doors like that also need to be securely locked and have proper signage. The third picture is a shelving unit that is used for storage. Workers might not often climb onto and stand on top of this area, but even if they do it once in a while, it needs a guardrail or similar protection. Moreover, those fire extinguishers that are sitting on top of that shelf can fall down onto somebody below, making that workplace and that work surface uh, potentially unsafe. All right, so repair pits. A fall protection system is not required for a repair pit or service pit that is less than 10 feet deep, so long as the employer is limiting access within six feet of the pit's edge, only two authorized employees, applies floor markings at least six feet from the edge of the pit in contrasting colors to the surrounding area, and posts visible caution signs that meet the requirement and state caution open pit. With pits greater than 10 feet, more traditional forms of fall protection will be required. Okay, so when looking at the construction industry. Briefly, some unsafe work surfaces, work areas, uh, include all of the following that you see bulleted on your screen. 
When it comes to decking, potential solutions may include temporary horizontal lifelines attached along the beams or safety nets. With fixed scaffolds, OSHA requires employers to provide workers with, a, with fall protection when they are working on scaffolds more than 10 feet above a lower level. And with floor openings, guardrails, and secure floor covers that are capable of holding the weight of whatever will be placed on top of or move over them are acceptable solutions. When it comes to leading edge work, OSHA requires the employer provide fall protection when working at heights of 15 feet and above. In these situations, a temporary horizontal lifeline may be used. And I've mentioned a horizontal lifeline a couple times. We'll look at what that looks like in some later slides, but generally it involves a horizontal cable that is attached to two or more anchor points on the roof. And in the system, the worker connects their harness to the lifeline uh, that is secured to the roof instead of using individual anchor points. When it comes to re-roofing, OSHA requires fall protection when working in residential construction at heights of six feet and above. So personal fall arrest systems may be used. This once again includes a full body harness, a rope grab lifeline and connectors. And when it comes to skylights, covering the skylight to meet weight standards uh, or keeping guardrails around the roof or the skylight may suffice as acceptable fault protection when discussing skylights. All right, so when it comes to controlling hazards around the facility, there's always a, a general eliminate, prevent, and then control hazard process we want to follow. If we can eliminate a hazard, that is what we want to do. Elimination when it comes to fall hazards means working from the ground. So in the case of those storage tanks we saw earlier, if inspections of those storage tanks can be conducted with drone equipment, that would allow the worker or the work to be completed from the ground. If there's gauges that need to be read on top of the tanks. If those gauges can be moved to the ground level, that would be another example of eliminating the fall hazard entirely. Engineering controls may include installing platforms or guard railings, utilizing certain types of equipment. Administrative controls are going to include everything from signage to controlled access zones, where only certain employees with certain permissions are allowed to work, safe job procedures, training, uh, documented inspections, all fit under that administrative control category. And personal protective equipment is considered the last line of protection, the last resort. And that's when we're discussing fall restraint and fall arrest systems, the harness, the connector, the anchor. When we're discussing engineering solutions, guardrails and fences, these are some of the best uh, preventative measures. There are guardrail systems now that are manufactured specifically for warehouse environments that are highly effective at entirely removing a fall hazard. They're used in loading docks. You may have seen them. It's a gate that protects the employee from the open edge as boxes or crates are being loaded onto the dock. And once loading is finished, the employee lifts the gate 
as it lifts, it protects the other open edge and allows the employee to access the box or equipment, whatever was being transported. When it comes to building your own guardrails for your stairway, for your mezzanine area, do keep in mind that your standard railing has to meet certain requirements. So the upper surp surface of the top rail needs to be 42 inches off the ground, plus or minus three inches. That mid rail needs to be at 21 inches. Now, if you're building a railing or creating a guardrail in a storage area where materials will be stored up against that guardrail, you will also need to install a tow board. Standard tow board is 3.5 inches high with no more than a fourth inch clearance above the floor. But do keep that in mind if you are constructing your own guardrails or railings. When eliminating slip, trip, and fall hazards around the workplace, good housekeeping, while it seems obvious, is one of the best ways to reduce injury when it comes to slip, trip, and falls. Poor housekeeping is one of the greatest contributors to these types of injuries as well. So right there we have that these bullet points as suggestions to you. Creating a plan uh, that you adhere to and that you train your employees on is one of the best ways to maintain good housekeeping around the facility. Controlling employee behavior is obviously easier said than done, but with consistency and communication from management top-down, it can be achieved. It is also important to note that poor housekeeping can be cited by an OSHA inspector during an inspection under the general duty clause, that clause that we had in the regulations portion of this presentation, an earlier slide. So it is citable. All right, slip trips and falls can also be mitigated during poor weather by identifying hazards outdoors and indoors. Depending on what state you live in, you may experience very poor weather conditions, which all have the potential to contribute to slip, trip, and fall injuries. So walking surfaces account for a significant portion of injuries reported by state agencies. The most frequently reported types of surfaces where these injuries occur include parking lots, sidewalks, food prep areas, shower stalls and residential dorms, and floors in general. Traction on outdoor surfaces can change considerably when weather conditions change, and those conditions can then affect indoor surfaces as moisture is tracked in by pedestrian traffic. Traction control procedures should be constantly monitored for their effectiveness, and a plan should be created for facilities that have snowy and icy environments on a seasonal basis. When it comes to your walking and working surfaces, you should be regularly inspecting and maintaining your walking working surfaces and keeping them in safe condition. Hazardous conditions uh, need to be corrected and repaired before employees use the walking working surface again. So if you can't make the fix immediately, you need to guard the area um, prevent employees from using it until it can be fixed. And then a qualified person must uh, supervise the correction or repairs when those repairs involve the structural integrity of a walking working surface. So if it's a surface that 
bears weight, maybe it's a bridge, something like that, uh, you need to have a qualified person supervise those corrections or repairs. So there is a difference between a competent person and a qualified person as OSHA defines it. A competent person is one who is capable of identifying existing and predictable hazards in the surroundings or working conditions that are unsanitary, hazardous, or dangerous to employees, and who has the authority to take prompt corrective measures to eliminate those hazards. A qualified person is one who, by possession of a recognized degree, certificate, or professional standing, or by extensive knowledge, training, and experience, has successfully demonstrated the ability to solve or resolve problems related to the subject matter, the work, or the project. So competent people can do facility inspections, can make a lot of fixes around the facility, but a qualified person is required when, like we said, the structural, structural integrity of an object is in question and needs to be repaired. When it comes to fall hazards around your facility or fall protection training, employers must train employees on the following. Any fall hazards associated with your facility and your work, the methods used to protect you from those hazards, proper and safe use of any personal fall arrest positioning or restraint system in applicable OSHA standards. All right, so let's say you get that ladder safety system for your 25 foot fixed roof access ladder. You need to train your maintenance personnel accordingly on that ladder safety system before they can use it. You should always document these things as well. So facility inspections, the employer must inspect the workplace for existing and potential fall hazards and inspect the facility for fall hazard controls that are already in place, such as guardrails, covers, grates, anchor points, and make sure that they are all in working condition. So always, always document all your inspections, keep them in a central location, and do know that KPA specializes in facility inspections, mock OSHA audits, and we also provide access to a large number of self-inspections, walking, working surface, self-inspections, uh, preliminary fall hazard assessments, which are all available through our app. So if you would like more information, please just let us know. Facility inspections can be conducted by a competent person. And during each of these inspections, you should always be not only identifying the hazards, but also identifying the best way to protect your employees from that hazard and implementing those changes promptly. So the last line of defense, personal protective equipment. So fall prevention, fall restraint, fall arrest systems, harnesses, lanyards, and anchor points. So often these terms are used interchangeably, fall prevention, fall restraint, and fall arrest systems, but they do mean different things. Fall prevention is most often used to describe a passive fall protection system like a rooftop guardrail system. Fall restraint systems is a fall protection strategy that prevents workers from reaching and tumbling over an unprotected ledge. You can think of them like a leash, essentially. They don't allow you to reach the, the ledge, 
Fall restraint systems can take a variety of forms, including single point anchors and horizontal lifelines, but each system has a common denominator, and that is that the worker must don a body harness and connect a lanyard to an anchor point. Fixed single point anchors are used for smaller, clearly defined work, while areas with horizontal lifelines are used for larger applications that require maintenance personnel to roam more freely about the rooftop or whichever surface they're working on. Maybe they are working on top of RV trucks and trailers um, and they would need a horizontal lifeline. A fall arrest system is the last resort strategy that is designed to stop a fall that has already occurred. So obviously we would like to keep workers from ever approaching an unprotected leading edge but the strategy is not always feasible. And for this reason, fall arrest systems often take the form similar to fall restraint systems, such as single point anchors and horizontal lifelines with workers connecting to the anchor points with lanyards and body harnesses. But for fall arrest application, the equipment is engineered to withstand the forces associated with stopping a fall. So fall arrest systems must also stop a fall before the employee strikes the surface below or the work area below and must withstand the downward force of 5,000 pounds and limit maximum arrest force to 1,800 pounds. So your fall arrest system can be divided into three points. As I just mentioned, you got the anchor, letter A, you got the body harness, letter B, and you got the components. Connectors like the snap hooks or D-rings, connection points, lanyards, deceleration devices, lifelines, etc. And you're going to want to use, maintain, inspect all of this equipment per manufacturer requirements and recommendations as well. Permanent anchorages can be used in areas with predictable or repetitive use, and anchor points need to be designated by a qualified person or engineer. This is important because in order to confirm the weight ratings and make sure that the point can support the force of a 200-pound person falling from a given height, you need that qualified person to sign off on the installation of those anchor points. Temporary anchor points are similar to permanent anchorages in their requirements, right? The location you're going to use them still needs to be designated and approved by a qualified person. They need to withstand the force of 200 pounds falling from any given height but they're different in that you will use them for uh, temporary work, not repetitive work. So they are anchor points that you can move around. All right, so when looking at body harnesses, there are many types of full body harnesses. And regardless of the make or model, they must be properly sized for the wearer, inspected and used according to the manufacturer. Body belts, are no longer considered acceptable for fall arrest systems at all. And the reason for this is they can snap an employee uh, or an employee may fall out of them during the course of a fall. And these things have happened, which is why they are no longer uh, considered an acceptable component in the fall arrest system requirement. Connecting components. 
In the first picture, you're looking at a retractable lanyard. This lanyard is designed to greatly decrease the free fall distance by locking up quickly, similar to a seatbelt. And in photo two, you have a six foot shock absorbing lanyard. The shock absorber decreases the forces of the fall arrest on the body to safe levels when properly used. And in photo three, you have a six foot non-shock absorbing lanyard. So this would not be used in a fall arrest system. It would be used, however, in a fall restraint system because it is not engineered to absorb any shock. So nobody should be falling off of anything with that. And here's a little visual. When choosing your equipment, uh, there are a number of things you want to keep in mind. You need to consider the maximum free fall distance, the deceleration distance of the lanyard in use, and the distance from the D-ring on the worker's harness to the worker's feet. These should all be considered when choosing your equipment and anchor points because your worker's safety is at risk here. So one question that does come up from time to time is whether or not certain types of work is exempt from the fall protection standard. Do we have to do it? Or can we be exempt? This piece of equipment is too expensive. So to be exempt, an employer needs to prove that it is not feasible to use fall protection when completing the required job duties. And the cost of installing fall protection or purchasing equipment does not fly with OSHA as an example of infeasibility. So in order to prove you're truly exempt from using fall protection, you have to really exhaust every possible fall prevention system, any PPE, any engineering control, administrative controls. You have to prove that all of those just can't be implemented and can't work. This link up here is for a letter of interpretation drafted by OSHA that may provide exemption to certain inspectors when conducting an inspection before or after the performance of work. So if you were curious and want to look at that, there's the link for it. But don't hold your breath um, when it comes to expecting any sort of exemption from uh, the fall hazards in your facility. OSHA takes it very, very seriously. Okay, and additional resources, KPA software and consultants, as well as the OSHA website is actually also a great resource for learning more about everything we've discussed here today and more. Fall protection trainings can last as long as 10 hours. So we did a brief review. I'm sure you might have a few questions. If you do have any questions, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to KPA or, you know, use these additional resources um, listed here. Great. Thank you, Dita. And with that, we did get a few questions. So our first question is, can I use fall protection equipment from job site to job site? Good question. And the answer to that is, Yes, you can. Um, you can use fall protection equipment from job, job site to job site so long as the equipment is in working condition and has been inspected per manufacturer requirements. It can be also used so long as 
the hazards you're using it for are appropriate. So you're using it for, for similar hazards. Okay, our next question is, what should I do if someone falls and needs to be rescued? Depending on the type of work being conducted, you will need to determine the likelihood of this sort of accident taking place. If this, there's a real, very realistic possibility that during work someone may fall and need to be rescued, a rescue team uh, should be on site or there should be employees trained in rescue operations on site while that work is being conducted. There are also uh, rescue instructions in if, if you have a written fall protection program that can be used when applicable. And at the very least, during the pre-work safety meeting, emergency contact information should be uh, communicated to everybody on site. It should be readily available and all staff should know where and how to access the information um, should you need to contact the local fire department or get help. Okay, and then this was just a question, um, a general question that I had. Um, are there any other more common questions you get asked about fall protection? Yeah, I think I just mentioned with the exemption slide, uh, and I'll reiterate, a lot of a lot of people do want to know if there's some way to be exempt from fall protection requirements. And, you know, the answer is almost always no. So it is a good idea if you do have fall hazards around your workplace to become com comfortable and familiar with taking care of those hazards because uh, the chances of being exempt are extremely low. And other common questions do have to do with appropriate equipment required for certain types of work, particularly work above four feet in the general industry or six feet in the construction industry. Uh, whenever you do have these sorts of questions, I strongly recommend doing your research, using your resources, and not making uh, guess judgments when it comes to your fall protection equipment. Um, and PPE, because uh, you, it's not the sort of thing you want to get wrong, whether it's guardrails or fall restraint and fall arrest systems. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for today's webcast. We ask that you take a minute to fill out the evaluation survey, which should be appearing on your screen momentarily. Your feedback is very important to us because it does help us improve our future webcasts. If you do not see the survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the evaluation by clicking the survey button near the lower right portion of your screen. On behalf of everyone here at the National Safety Council, we hope that you're all staying safe and healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank our outstanding presenter today, Dita Amte, everyone from our sponsor, KPA, and all of you who listened in. Have a safe day.